0: I invite you to open the Word of God with me to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Galatians 5, verse 16 to 6, verse 10. that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Let the one who was taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you remember the first time that you made something grow? Often that happens very early on in primary school or year one. Maybe you brought home a little jar with a bean in it wrapped in some wet paper towel and you looked at it every day. First it was Hard and shiny, and then it became a little bit wrinkled. Then it expanded, and maybe a few days later you saw some roots coming out of the bottom, and then you saw a little shoot. That was the most exciting thing you ever saw. Do you still remember that excitement? But it's also mysterious. You don't really know what's happening. It was a little bit like getting a present on your birthday. We know that there's a box. You don't really know what's in it. It's the potential for all sorts of things. This morning, we're looking at another text from Galatians, and we, we encounter that same sense of mystery and also that same sense of promise. But the only difference is that it takes place on a much larger scale, the scale of our entire life. The Apostle Paul writes, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And That is the key verse, and that will also form the basis of our point of departure as we explore this text together this morning. God promises that you will reap what you sow, and we'll ask ourselves two questions. What are you sowing, and what will you reap now, if you look at this passage together, you look at verse 6, verse 6 seems a little bit out of place, doesn't it? It almost looks like a little note tucked in between verses 5 and 7. Remember in verse 5, he said, for each will have to bear his own load. In verse 7, he talks about reaping what you will sow, and then in between we get this verse which seems unconnected, disconnected from either of them, where he talks about let the one who was taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. But actually, as we'll see, it, it does um, transition nicely into what follows, and it prepares us in a way. It gives us the right mindset to deal with the rather confronting things that Paul is going to be saying to us. So if we focus on verse 6 first, one of the things that it conveys to us is that God's Word is immensely valuable. It is a means by which He speaks to us, And God values His Word. He loves His Word. Through His Word, He warns us of the consequences of sin, but He also holds out the hope of the gospel. In other words, the very things that happen in verses 7 and 8. But one one question that we should consider is, do we value God's Word as much as He does? How we regard God's Word says a lot about our heart. And one of the primary ways in which we show our regard for the Word and for the ministry of the Word is through our financial support. Our Lord Jesus reminded us of that when He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now some might wonder whether or not ministers of the Word should be bivocational, that they uh, practice two professions at the same time. And there are some who do that. These people think, look, the Apostle Paul himself supported his ministry by making tents on the side, so why should ministers today do it any differently? But it is interesting to note that although the Apostle Paul had a tent-making ministry, he never expected others to do the same. You have to um, realize that he lived in a particular cultural context in which um, when you, uh, people supported you, then you were obligated to them in all sorts of different ways. And he didn't want others to have that leverage over him, over the ministry of the gospel. But he certainly expected them to support the preaching of the gospel. And he writes about that in other passages. And so the um, focus as we consider these things this morning is on the gospel and on preaching. Preaching is the most important part of a minister's work. It is how God brings salvation to people. And it takes a lot of time to do it well. And that is good because Scripture is an inexhaustible mine of treasures. And and the work of preaching is hard work, but it is beautiful work. And you cannot be in the workforce and spend that sort of time on, on the ministry of the Word at the same time. That's why Scripture commands us to support the ministry of the gospel. Main means of support for the ministry of the gospel is financial But there are other ways to support it as well. John Calvin wrote, If the word be truly esteemed, its ministers will always receive kind and honorable treatment. So that expands to other areas as well. And uh, we're thinking about our youth here. Our youth can show support for the ministry of the gospel by being properly prepared for catechism, for example. They can show support by interacting respectfully with the teacher and with their fellow students and not talking out of turn. Maybe they cannot support the ministry financially yet, but they can in those other ways. And if they choose not to, that says more about the condition of their heart than about the teacher's classroom management skills. Because if we think about it, classroom management really is something that should apply to primary school, It should not be an issue anymore once children become older, then they should voluntarily cooperate. And if they don't, it's because we collectively, as church community, set the bar too low with our expectations. But let's think for a moment now about, we're thinking about the ministry of the Word and about um, supporting it, but what, what should our attitude be when we consider these things? And verse 6 gives us a clue. It says, let the, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And that word share is key here. It's not about putting the minister on a pedestal. It is about sharing together what the Lord has given us. That implies a relationship which is not primarily financial, but it is a form of fellowship in, in the much more meaningful work of the gospel. And actually that word share also points us to Jesus Christ who shared himself with us, who had fellowship with us in the fullest possible sense of the word so that he could take that gospel and destroy the works of the devil in our lives. It is a mutual partnership in the gospel. So verse 6 has this warmth in it. It is this, this background of mutual care between the minister and the congregation where they together share this great thing that God has given us in the gospel. They show this care to each other, this fellowship through living out of the gospel together. And now you see why verse 6 came before verse 7. It makes a lot of sense when you look at it from that perspective because in verse 6, Paul is essentially telling them to take the gospel seriously. He says, take it seriously, show it through your financial support, and then he goes on to talk about sowing and reaping. So you could argue that supporting the gospel and working with it in your life is a form of sowing to the Spirit. But now, what does he mean with sowing? He explains that in verses 7 and 8. So the basic principle here in verse, verse 7 is that God is not mocked. In other words, do not think that you can ignore the basic realities of life. God has created this world with certain laws. Those laws uh, run run the universe, really. The law of gravity, for example, holds everything together. Um, The laws of physics. Many of you who um, have just studied this in in year 11 and 12, would, would know about that. Those are all laws that God put into place. And just like there are laws in the physical world, there are also laws in the moral world. There are spiritual laws at work that are just as fixed as the law of gravity. And one of them is the law that whatever one sows, that he will also reap. To ignore that, to live as if that does not apply to you, is actually a form of mocking God, even if you don't use words because he was the one who put that law into place to begin with. So by ignoring it, you are mocking him. So what, what does he mean when he says, whatever one sows, that he will also reap? Some people think that it means what goes around comes around. Have you ever heard that saying? What goes around comes around? Secular people refer to that as karma. Karma. The the idea is that what you do now has consequences for your future, and they could be good or bad consequences. You might not see them right away. They might be a whole lifetime away in in Hinduism where that idea comes from. Karma might even be something that shows in the next life because they believe in reincarnation. But the point is that there is a universal moral law at work, and these people are heathens. They're unbelievers, and they still, even if they get it wrong, they still understand that on some level there is a moral law at work of cause and effect of reaping and sowing. But Paul is not writing about that. Paul is not writing about karma in the sense that it's understood in Hinduism or Buddhism or your next door neighbor maybe. No. He's not writing about karma. Why not? Because karma is considered to be a kind of universal moral law that applies blindly. Bad actions have bad consequences. Good actions have good consequences. But, uh, and from the perspective of karma, that, that operates regardless. Paul is saying something very different. He is saying, there is a God. And this God promises that you will reap what you sow. That is not blind karma God is the awesome, blameless and just judge and avenger of sin, as it says in the canons of Dort. Not an impersonal form of karma, but the terrifying reality of coming face to face with a God who punishes sin, who knows our thoughts, who judges our actions. Now the terminology of of sowing, of course, is an agricultural metaphor. A farmer buries seed in the ground for a while. The the field looks empty. If you didn't know that the farmer had sown already, you might wonder if anything was happening at all. But all that time, the seed is sprouting. It's growing underground through this mysterious process. And months later, the farmer harvests a crop. It happens every time. The seed that was put into the ground multiplies into a crop. And our text uses this as a picture to describe our actions in life. It says that the the flesh is everything in us that is sinful. It's called the old nature. And so to sow to the flesh means to live as if this life is all that you've got. Your point of reference is completely horizontal. Everything you do is on a horizontal plane. And then to sow to the flesh is the opposite of crucifying it. To sow to the flesh is to dwell on thoughts, whether lost resentment, bitterness, self-pity, other forms of impurity. It is to focus our thoughts and our energy on, on the works of the flesh, really, as he describes them in 5 verse 19. And our text is a warning. It reminds us there are no actions in life that are spiritually neutral. Every action is a form of sowing to the flesh or to the spirit, and when all of our sowing grows into a crop, as it will, over time, we will harvest either corruption or eternal life. Now, you might wonder, how can this be if God has already decided beforehand whom, we, whom He will elect? All right, if you've, um, if you've um, learned Reformed theology, if you've maybe been in the canons of Dort class last year, you might wonder, how does this work? But this passage is not talking about election. This passage is talking about the natural consequences of what we sow in life. We could look at it from the perspective of God's covenant. God enters into a covenant relationship with his people, and in that covenant he makes promises. He obliges us to respond He promises blessings if we respond with faith. He promises curses if we respond with rebellion. The point is that no one should think that just because you're a believer, you can do what you want. The Lord says, no, you belong to me. Now live accordingly. And he calls us to respond to those promises with the faith that he gives to us. And that response then is expressed in the choices that we make every day. That's straight from the canons of Dort. Look at what it says. Let's turn to the canons of Dort together. Chapter 3, 4, Article 12, page 578. Look at page 578. You look at the first column under Article 12, Regeneration is a Work of God Alone, and it talks about conversion and about regeneration and uh, how God transforms us. And then midway through, it says it is, regeneration is, however, clearly a supernatural Most powerful, and at the same time, most delightful, marvelous, mysterious, and inexpressible work. According to Scripture, inspired by the author of this work, regeneration is not inferior in power to creation or the raising of the dead. And now look at this. Hence, all those in whose hearts God works in this amazing way are certainly, unfailingly, and effectually regenerated and do actually believe and then the will, so renewed, is not only acted upon and moved by God, but acted upon by God, the will itself also acts. Therefore, man himself is rightly said to believe and to repent through the grace that he has received. So look at what this says. It says, God has made, if you have faith, if you're a believer, God has made you spiritually alive he acts on your will, and then he calls you to respond by making wise choices. To respond to the promises that he makes by sowing to the Spirit. Everything we do is a form of sowing that will lead to a certain harvest. Or to put it differently, choices have consequences. And, and we see that all around us, don't we? We see that choices have consequences, and the Bible makes that point in many different places as well. One example comes from Proverbs 1, verse 29 to 31. Here, wisdom is personified, and she speaks, wisdom speaks about people who made bad choices. And it says, because they hated knowledge and did not choose, interesting word, they did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. In other words, if you sow foolishness, you will reap destruction. Proverbs 3 verse 31 reminds us, do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. Hosea 10 verse 12 and 13 says, sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You've plowed iniquity, you've reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of life. So there you have it again. The Lord says, look, He calls you to make a choice. Every choice that you make, every act that you sow comes with a consequence. It leads to a certain kind of harvest. Now you may not see that right away, especially not if you're young. And the choices that you make now don't always have immediate consequences. But they do indicate a particular direction to your life. And that direction becomes clear over time. Think about it from the perspective of geometry. The difference between a line and a point. A single choice is like a point. If you connect two points, you have a line. If you have two lines that continue side by side, they might seem parallel at first. But if they begin with a very slight deviation from each other, then at some point they will be very far apart provided that the lines are long enough. So we should not think that sowing only includes the big choices in life. There's no no time that we're not sowing. We're always sowing. We're sowing at this very moment. Even apathy and disengagement is a form of sowing. By nature, all of us are lazy when it comes to spiritual things. We're very dedicated when it comes to looking after ourselves and our own. But anything spiritual, anything that requires us to respond in a spiritual manner will often bring out the laziness in us. How does it show? Unwillingness to engage. Unwillingness to put an effort for men. Unwillingness to show headship in your relationship with your wife if you're married. Unwilling to do the hard work of godly parenting if you have children. Unwilling to engage with the church community. If you're living on the fringes. And so this passage is encouraging us to think about that. It's encouraging us to think about the trajectory of our choices. It's saying to us, God promises that you reap what you sow. What are you sowing? And many Christians don't know the answer to that question. They don't really know what motivates them. They're not thoughtful about life. They get distracted by all sorts of stuff around them, most of which doesn't matter. They don't think through the consequences of their mindset. They're not intentional about how they live as Christians. They don't set their minds on things that are above. On our own, we will only ever sow to the flesh. The sinful nature is not something you can avoid on your own because it's with us. James 1 verse 14 to 15 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's all that we're capable of sowing on our own is death. So this text is asking us, what are you sowing? And that metaphor is an implied warning. It's an implied warning because you don't always see what's growing under the surface. Remember the farmer's field. You don't always see what's growing under the surface. And this passage is asking us earnestly, what are you sowing? Do not ignore the question. God is not mocked. Now you may wonder, where is the gospel in all of this? Oh, the gospel is in what the passage implies. Why does the Lord warn us? He warns us because he loves us. As he says in Revelation 3 verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Be zealous, repent. Yes, there is the warning to not sow to the flesh, but there's also the call to sow to the Spirit, and that implies that the Lord really wants to dwell with us. You think about that. The Lord, the living God, really wants to dwell with us. This is a glorious reality. It is a promise to you, the one who sows to the Spirit, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God's promise to us, His people. God revealed Christ as Savior because He wants to save His people. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. John 3, verse 17. See, when we believe in Jesus Christ, then we are no longer condemned to sow to the flesh. We are no longer condemned to reap corruption. Then our trajectory changes. Then He forgives us. He renews us. He shares His life with us. In fact, He shares His life with us now already. As it says in Psalm 36, verse 9, For with you... Is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. When you sow to the Spirit, you are living out of the life that God has already given to you. It's like he says in Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. To sow to the Spirit is to seek the things that are above. Precisely because you have been raised with Christ. And that kind of sowing is a question of faith. You invest yourself in things that you don't see right away. Once the farmer has plowed, plowed under his seed, he needs, to, he needs to trust that it will grow. Trust that the harvest will come in time. That's an act of faith, and it is a faith that our text encourages One place where we need that encouragement is for those of us who are parents. And parenting is not usually defined by one or two key moments. It's not one or two dots. It's the thousands of little choices that you make over the course of your time raising your children. Most of the time you cannot see the long-term consequences of those choices. So you need to raise your children biblically. You have to act on faith. You have to trust that this will bear fruit in some way. And it can be easier to not engage. It can be easier to choose the easy easy way out in the moment. And our text is encouraging us to take a long-term perspective. So to all the mothers out there who read Bible stories to your little ones, it is not wasted. It is not wasted. And the care that you show to your children every day, it is not wasted, even if you feel like you're doing the same thing over and over. The life of a mother is a continual act of sowing, and there will be a harvest in any case in your life. If you serve the Lord faithfully, then He will grow the fruit of the Spirit in all of your circumstances, in your housework, in your caring for the children, in all of your life. And under the Lord's blessings, there may be a harvest in your children's lives as well. You cannot give them faith, but there can be a form of cross-pollination, so to speak, where what you sow in your life helps them to work out what they need to sow in theirs. Do you see? The same thing applies to the fathers. It's Father's Day today, and on this day as well, God promises you will reap what you sow. You can often see what you're sowing now already by looking at your children Paul is writing here about our own lives and our own sowing, but we never live in isolation. We live in families, we live in church communities, and so our sowing in our own lives impacts those around us, and it includes how we interact with those around us. Also, our children and how we interact with them is shaped by our own relationship with God. So if your relationship with your children is good, if they love the Lord, if they are sowing to the Spirit in their own lives, if they are displaying the fruit of the Spirit then you can be very thankful for the transforming work of the gospel in your family. And if this is not the case, then this passage is a gracious call on Father's Day from your Father in heaven to you as a Father on earth that it's not too late. But you have to take it seriously. God promises that you will reap what you sow. We've considered what we're sowing. Now let's consider the question, what will you reap The Apostle Paul writes that the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. He says in verse 8, what does he mean by corruption? Well, the word itself refers to physical destruction. You think of a, a body decomposing in the grave. But it is here contrasted with eternal life, which tells us that the kind of corruption he's talking about is it goes further than that clearly here this corruption because it's contrasted with eternal life it, it must refer to eternal death corruption in the ultimate sense of the word when people think about eternal death they think it means eternal unconsciousness it does not it is eternal death in the sense of eternal conscious ruin You can already see the beginnings of that ruin and the natural consequences that come from certain sins. Not all of our reaping happens in the life to come. A lot of it is also in this life. Alcohol abuse will destroy your body. Sleeping around will bring you venereal disease. God is not mocked. Actions have consequences. And that is not the end of the consequences. That is the beginning. The ultimate corruption is eternal death. Eternal death is not eternal unconsciousness. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now you think, those words that we just read, that verse, the categories of people that are mentioned there correspond quite closely to the people who do the works of the flesh in, uh, in the passage that we read. And, and when they follow that trajectory to the end, they have become terminally sinful. There's no way of going back. The ultimate destiny of all those who harvest to the flesh is to exist in a state of terminal sin under God's wrath. Now again, you are not saved by what you sow, You are saved through faith in Jesus Christ, His work, His perfect sowing, His harvest given to us all. But you show your faith in Him through what you sow in your own life. And if you sow to the flesh, how can there be faith? If someone sows a field full of cape weed, how can they realistically expect to harvest wheat later on? It doesn't work that way. We know that. If you sow to the works of the flesh, you cannot expect to harvest the fruit of the Spirit. If you sow drunkenness, promiscuity, pornography, gambling, grumbling, vindictiveness, bitterness, spite, rage, anger, you cannot expect to harvest something totally different. And the really strange part is that sometimes we do. And we think that just because we grew up in the church, that makes us a Christian. You know what? Growing up in church does not make you a Christian just as much as flying in an airplane does not make you a pilot. It does not work that way. We know that, but we keep on deluding ourselves. That's why he says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived because we deceive ourselves all the time. But, again, that promise, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Those who reap eternal life Do so because they sow to the Spirit. It is a harvest that has been enabled by God Himself. As he says in Hosea 14, verse 5 through 7, I will be like the Jew to Israel. And you know you need you need Jew and rain to make things grow, right? I will be, I will be, he says, like the Jew to Israel, his people. He, Israel, shall blossom like the lily, he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. That's Hosea 14, verse 5 through 7. And God shows us there that the fruit that our lives produce ultimately come out of our relationship with Him. Eternal life is eternal fellowship with God. The the fellowship that all believers have with Him now already. It's like our Lord said in John 3 verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. If you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you commit your life to Him wholeheartedly, you have life with Him now at this very moment. You have fellowship. You have communion. You can reap to the Spirit. You are enabled To sow to the Spirit, I mean. Every time that you make a choice that reflects that relationship with God, you are sowing to the Spirit. You are placing your trust in God in this particular area of your life by sowing to the Spirit. And the more you trust God, the more He rewards your trust. The Lord cannot reward our trust if we don't trust in Him. That makes sense, doesn't it? The Lord cannot reward our trust if we don't trust in Him. But the more we trust in Him, the more He rewards our trust. Or to put it differently, if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. You will enjoy eternal life with God in all of its fullness. Life that begins now already. Life that comes to full harvest in the future. If you belong to Christ, you are already an heir to that life. As it says in Galatians 3 verse 29, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Or Galatians 4, verse 7 You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You have the covenant promises. You have the promise of eternal life. Now you need to believe. Respond to that accordingly. Eternal life is eternal fellowship with God. It's not earned by what you sow, but it is expressed in what you sow. And that is exciting. It is exciting to watch that seed grow. It is exciting to know that you are sowing to eternal life. It's exciting to look forward to the final harvest. And the harvest will be there as surely as a plant grows from a seed. Amen.